Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. Thanks so much for being here. And this week I'm going to get on a soapbox a little bit. I'm going to talk about comedy. And I should preface this by saying I'm going to talk about some older comedy shows. And I know there's a certain part of the audience that rolls their eyes and goes, oh, God, old guy talking about the good old days when he was doing this. And that's not my point. Uh, You'll see my point as we go along. But there is a show on CNN, a documentary series called The History of the Sitcom, which actually I find very disappointing, but it's showing you all these various sitcoms, and I don't think they're doing the genre or those particular shows justice. So I want to talk a little bit about the primary function of the sitcom. So let me start by saying this is how I got the inspiration. I was reading a book by Ron Brownstein called Rock on the Water, And in this book, he basically feels that Los Angeles in 1974 was pretty much the center of the TV world, the movie world, rock music, politics, that for that one golden period of 1974, that L.A. was pretty much the mecca. And as I mentioned, one of the categories that he discusses is television and primarily he talks about sitcoms because it was a golden age in sitcoms and I want to talk a little bit about that to start things off. Now at one point, I think it was the 1973-1974 TV primetime season, CBS had what many believe to be the greatest single lineup of any network of any year. This was the lineup on CBS. You started with All in the Family. You then followed with MASH. Next up was the Mary Tyler Moore Show. That was followed by the Bob Newhart Show. And finally, rounding it out at 10 o'clock at night, was the Carol Burnett Show. Again, if you're of a certain age, uh, these are just titles. And I would say, if you are at all a student of 
situation comedies or comedy in general and you are not familiar with any of the shows that I just mentioned, I suggest you seek them out and start watching them. There is an awful lot to glean from these shows. The thing that I find interesting about these shows, and I was struck by this as I was reading one of Brownstein's chapters on television, was how different they all were. So let's go down the list. First of all, you have All in the Family, which was groundbreaking. It was a sensation in its time. There had never been a situation comedy remotely like this. This began in the early 70s. It was originally a British series. And then Norman Lear found it, wanted to adapt it for an American audience, made a couple of pilots at ABC originally, and just kept recasting the young couple. But the, the core of the show, Archie Bunker and, uh, and his wife Edith, well, those two actors in Carol O'Connor and Gene Stapleton, they were set, but they just kept trying to find a young couple that would really connect. Well, after two pilots, ABC gave up. And, uh, you know, the way these things work, planets have to line up. It just so happened that CBS at the time got a new president, Robert Wood, and he wanted to jettison all of the rural shows like Petticoat Junction and Beverly Hillbillies and Green Acres and Hee Haw and all of that, you know, rural stuff. He wanted to get rid of that and go more upscale and more urban. And he was looking for some things that would shake up the lineup. He was looking for some shows that people might actually want to talk about the next day. And then along came, at the right moment in time, All in the Family. So they recast, again, the young couple. And this time it was Rob Reiner and Sally Struthers. And that combination worked. And the show got put on the air. And when it originally aired on CBS... I believe it was on Tuesday night. It wasn't like this huge mega hit right off the starting blocks. It actually took a while, but the reviews were impressive and people started catching on. Have you seen this show? This is really something. And within a short period of time, All in the Family became incredibly popular, and so CBS decided to launch an entire night. Now, it's interesting when you think that currently the networks think of Saturday night as just a giant wasteland. In fact, I don't think any of the networks program original material for Saturday night. It's either like reruns of shows from the previous week. Uh, Sometimes they'll use the night to do uh, baseball or 
live football broadcast, something like that. But basically the idea is the networks feel that no one is watching TV on Saturday night, that everybody is going out. Well, everyone went out in 1970 as well, But I think uh, most people who do sit in on Saturday night now have so many more choices. And among those choices are all of the streamers and all of the movie options. And I'm sure a lot of people, if they're going to sit home on a Saturday night, will say, well, you know, in the old days, we would have gone to a movie theater. Let's see what movie is on HBO Prime or Max or whatever it is, and we can watch that. So viewing, well, viewing in general has gone way down uh, for the broadcast networks, but Saturday night in particular. Not so back in the early 70s. In fact, when All in the Family moved to Saturday night at 8 o'clock, and you should remember, too, that this was really before the age of the VCR. So if you wanted to see All in the Family, you had to be in front of the television set Saturday night at 8 o'clock, tuned to CBS. As a result, restaurants (laughs) found that, uh, you know, their business went way down until like, you know, 8.45, 9 o'clock because people were staying home to watch All in the Family. It was, like I said, a huge sensation. The type of comedy that was employed with All in the Family was issues. They dealt with the current issues of the day. I mean, the idea is you had Archie Bunker who was this uh, middle-class guy from Queens who, on the one hand, you could say was really a bigot, but I would argue that the thing about Archie Bunker is that he was deathly afraid that the world that he grew up with, that the world he understood, was changing and it was changing quickly, and that the ground underneath him was shifting, and it was very terrifying, and he was basically latching out. He was also kind of ignorant. (laughs) Haven't we seen that in recent years? But the issues of the day, like race, like homelessness, politics, that sort of thing, all of those issues were debated on the show. There would be heated debates between Archie and his son-in-law, Meathead, played by Rob Reiner, and the writers were expected to read several newspapers a day, and there were copies of the Wall Street Journal and New York Times and L.A. Times in the writer's room uh, to be used for reference so they would deal with whatever was going on in the news that's what would appear on all in the family then you come to mash and mash started out a couple of years before they were on saturday night they were originally on sunday night which was a terrible time slot for them and mash of course is single camera all in the family was a multi-camera show and it was shot on tape shot on videotape so it has a very flat look very much like you are watching a play well mash was single camera as if you were watching a movie 
And MASH is such a unique show in so many ways. And certainly one way is that it's the only sitcom that I can think of that really is based on an existential dilemma. I mean, here you are in the Korean War, and the doctor's main objective is to save lives in an environment where the main objective is to kill as many people as you can. How do they deal with it? The humor comes out of self-defense, out of just trying to stay sane in what is basically an insane situation. And you have the added uh, predicament that these doctors were drafted. Okay, these guys did not volunteer to be involved in this conflict. They were drafted. They were there uh, under duress. And the other thing, of course, about MASH, at the time, the Vietnam War was still raging on. And so there was this parallel. You you were easily able to make the connection between the Korean War and the Vietnam War. So it was never mentioned. Nothing about the Vietnam War was ever mentioned, but you knew you were able to make that uh, that parallel jump in your mind. So that was MASH at 8.30, and then at 9 o'clock was the Mary Tyler Moore Show. Also, um, that started a couple of years earlier, but it was always on at uh, Saturday night at 9 o'clock. Oh, I should say, okay, let me back up just a second. When the Mary Tyler Moore show was conceived, it came about because Mary Tyler Moore had played Laura Petrie on the Dick Van Dyke show, and she was a breakout star. So that show ends around 1966, I believe. And so now Mary is trying to get into movies. That's not really happening. She does a movie, I think it's called Change of Habit with uh, Elvis Presley. And then uh, she was going to appear in a Broadway adaptation. I think it was even a musical of Breakfast at Tiffany's. And the movie, of course, was a huge hit in like 1962, the Truman Capote uh, novel. And uh, it had Audrey Hepburn in it and George Papard. And so Mary Tyler Moore was going to play the Holly Golightly part on Broadway. But it was just a train wreck, despite the fact that you had the great Abe Burroughs directing and Edward Albee came in and tried to revise the script, and even that didn't work. It closed out of town. It never opened on Broadway, and it was a huge financial failure. So that's what was going on with Mary Tyler Moore in her life and her career. And then CBS put together a variety special with Dick Van Dyke and Mary and They did skits and were singing and dancing, whatever, but it was a huge hit. It got astronomical ratings, so much so that CBS at the time decided, let's give her a sitcom and we'll give her a commitment of 13 on the air. And that's when her husband, 
who at the time was the president of 20th Century Fox TV, Grant Tinker, and had come from the world of advertising, well, he decided, let's form our own company, okay, so that if this show is a success, we own it, lock, stock, and barrel. Why should we take it to Warner Brothers or 20th Century Fox and share in the partnership? Yeah, we're going to have to pay the overages, but we'll get a couple of loans and we'll bet on ourselves. So that's how MTM became MTM. And so Mary had this commitment. And Grant Tinker put together two writers, Alan Burns and James L. Brooks. And the two of them were never a partnership before, but they had worked together in other shows like Room 222. And actually, Alan gave Jim his very first assignment uh, in a show that, that he had worked on. So they they knew each other, but they were not necessarily a writing team. Grant Tinker figured, you know what, these two guys, they're kind of a yin and yang. Uh, I think they'll work well together. So originally they came up, and I know this is a long tangent, originally they came up with a premise where Mary was divorced. And they took it to CBS, and this is still before Robert Wood made his pronouncement that he wanted to change the whole outlook of CBS. So it was still in its kind of rural phase. So Brooks and Burns go back to New York and pitch to Mike Dan, who at the time was the president of the entertainment division. He hated the idea. He hated the idea because there had never been a divorced woman starring in a sitcom, which, of course, is one of the reasons why Brooks and Burns wanted to do it. But he said, America is going to think she's divorced from Dick Van Dyke. So they got sent back to redevelop the show. Originally, the idea was that Mary was going to be an assistant for a high-powered uh, gossip columnist, someone like Joyce Haber. Well, they decided to throw out everything and set it in WJM, a uh, fictional newsroom in Minneapolis, which was a city that hadn't really uh, had a sitcom that was uh, set in it uh, prior to the Mary Tyler Moore show. And the way they kind of got around what Mary's situation was, was that she had been in a long-term relationship with a guy. She had put him through medical school, and now that he's got his degree and he's a doctor, he dumps her. Okay, you've heard that story before. And so now Mary has decided to leave wherever that was, I think it was Chicago, and start a new life in Minneapolis. You're going to make it after all. And I find it interesting that the network had a huge problem with her getting divorced, but didn't seem to have a problem with the fact that she was living with a guy out of wedlock for a number of years. Anyway, they do this new version. They write the pilot. Mike Dan and the other powers that be at CBS hate it. They just hate this this show. 
And the only person at CBS who really responded to it was the woman who was the head of casting by the name of Ethel Winant. And she championed the show and helped them cast it. And it took a long time to cast the show. I'm not going to go into all of that. But so they finally put together this show. They do this pilot. And CBS says, all right, we have to run this uh, stink burger. So we're going to throw it on Tuesday night, like right after Hee Haw. Just so incompatible with whatever its lead-in was. And we're going to put it on a night when it's up against like a top five show. So basically, we're just going to bury this and it's going to last 13 weeks and then out. Well, they make out this schedule and then Robert Wood decides, I want to go in this other direction. And Mike Dan doesn't want to go in that direction. He's out. And Wood brings in this hotshot young programmer who had done a great job with their daytime uh, lineup, a guy named Fred Silverman. So Fred Silverman is watching all of the pilots. He's sitting in a screening room and he watches the pilot of the Mary Tyler Moore show. And he goes, get me Robert Wood. And he calls Robert Wood in New York and he said, I just watched the exact show that you want to put on CBS. The only problem is it's in a terrible time slot. And I know that we've done all of the ads and there are billboards and, you know, articles and TV guide and everything. I want to switch the primetime lineup, and I want to put this show somewhere where it has a chance of catching on and it has the right audience to watch it. And to his credit, Bob Wood said, okay. So it got a reprieve and it was moved out of Tuesday night into Saturday night where it did okay originally. Interestingly, it uh, got mixed reviews I think it was the New York Times that that just hated it. Of course, now you look back and you go, this show's a classic and yet got crappy reviews. So that's the Mary Tyler Moore Show. That was followed by the Bob Newhart Show at 9.30. And the Bob Newhart Show was produced by MTM, same company that obviously did the Mary Tyler Moore Show. And it was very character-driven. And if I can go back a little bit to the Mary Tyler Moore show, it was character-driven as well. And I'll talk about that more in a few minutes. So let's jump back to the Bob Newhart show. It was character-driven. It was done on film. It was done in front of a live studio audience. When you do a show on film, it has a softer look. And it's it's actually a, a more pleasing look. The thing about the Bob Newhart show, I think that separated it from Mary Tyler Moore, was that it was more absurd. There was like a weird quirkiness to it. If you're familiar with the Bob Newhart show, he is a psychologist living in Chicago with uh, Suzanne Plachette as his wife. I mean, how a guy like that gets Suzanne Plachette as a wife, I don't know. But anyway, it's television. Uh, and you saw 
the weirdos that were his patients and the bizarre group sessions that he would have. And there was just something about that show. The real guiding forces of it was a writing team, Tom Patchett and Jay Tarsus. And they went on to do Buffalo Bill. They each went on and did interesting, different kind of offbeat shows. But uh, they were the showrunners of the Bob Newhart show. They also then became the showrunners a few years later of the Tony Randall show. And uh, they were the two that gave me and my partner, David Isaacs, our first break. But I digress. So that's the Bob Newhart show. And then at 10 o'clock, you had the Carol Burnett show. And the Carol Burnett show was a flat-out variety show. And the comedy that they would employ was sketch comedy. They would do parodies. They would do five-minute sketches, the kind of thing that you see on Saturday Night Live. Although, for the most part, it had a better batting average. So you have five shows, all in the family, dealt with issues. MASH, it dealt with war and also had a lot of dramedy in it. So there was that. It was not just hijinks in the military. It was a show that, although very funny... It still was very much grounded in the reality of war to the point where they killed off one of their major stars, McLean Stevenson, who was Henry Blake, decided to leave. They decided to to kill him off, which caused a huge uproar at the time. But the MASH producers, Larry Gelbart and Gene Reynolds, maintained, you know what, that's war. (laughs) That's what war is about, and that people you care about die. It's not just these faceless, nameless soldiers. It's people you care about. They die, and we're going to show you that by killing one of our beloved characters. Still, there was a lot of humor in that show, and because it was single camera, it had a very different rhythm to it than the shows that were shot in front of a live studio audience. It was just peppered with one-liners. Somebody described it as vaudeville. I wouldn't say vaudeville. I think it really reflected a style that uh, Larry Gelbart developed that was just very, very fast-paced. The show is just dense with comedy. And I think that's one of the reasons why MASH continues to be so successful in syndication today, because you can watch a show, an episode of MASH that you've seen three or four times, and there's so many jokes that you find yourself catching things that you had not seen before, even though you had seen the episode. So uh, so that's MASH. Then, as we mentioned, you get into the Mary Tyler Moore show, which was like Bob Newhart, filmed in front of a live studio audience. It was done on tape. It had a softer look. And Brooks and Burns decided to go in a very character um, direction. And yes, it was reflecting the times, Mary being a single woman trying to come into her own back in the early 70s. But... 
she wasn't a quote unquote feminist. And as they mention in the book, there was a lot of pressure on Brooks and Burns to deal with some issues, to really delve into feminism and that type of thing. And they resisted, you know, uh, Jim Brooks said that All in the Family was an amazing show. He was in awe of All in the Family. But wisely, he said, but that's not what we do. So he didn't look at All in the Family and say, okay, how can we make our show more like that? He said, let's go in a different direction. He wanted it to be about small things, about relatable issues that characters would have, dealing with relationships, dealing with personal problems, professional problems. Again, it was pretty much all character. Then you had the Bob Newhart show, which was character but kind of absurd, followed by the Carol Burnett show, which, like I said, was just sketch comedy. So five very different styles. And here is the common denominator. And it's the reason why I'm doing this podcast, because this is the point I really want to make. Took us a while to get there, but hopefully it was interesting along the way. The primary goal of all of these shows was to make you laugh. Comedy was king, as they say. The producers of all five shows wanted these shows to be funny, to be really, really funny. Yeah, they were different. And it shows there are different forms of comedy, some broad, some issue-based, some detailed, some absurdist. They were all very different forms of comedy. But when you tuned in CBS Saturday night from 8 o'clock until 11, you laughed. You laughed. I mean, laughed out loud. And that is what I think a comedy should be. And there's not a lot of that today. There are not a lot of shows that are aggressively funny. There are shows that have funny moments. You know, we talk about dramedies and all, but... You know, you look at the Emmy nominations and you're going, you know, some of these shows are good shows. They're not comedies. I mean, I think to Hacks, which is a show that I've mentioned on this podcast and also on my blog that I really like, things starring Gene Smart. I really like that show. Do I consider it a comedy? No, I don't. There are comedic elements And I know there are a lot of comedy writers who, for whatever reason, hate that show. And I go, what is to hate about it? And they go, well, it's a show about comedy that's not funny. And by that, they mean her job, her role on the uh, show, is to be a stand-up comedian. 
She's supposed to be sort of a Joan Rivers slash Rita Rudner who has her own showroom in Las Vegas. But I I see their point. Yes, it's not really a comedy. Do I enjoy watching it? Yes. Call it whatever you want. It's a drama called The Good Fight that's on Paramount+. Plus. And it's done by the same people who did The Good Wife. Very dramatic shows, very interesting. They take some big swings from time to time. And there are some comedic elements and laugh-out moments from time to time. But I don't consider them a comedy, and I don't think they consider themselves a comedy. And say what you will about the Chuck Lorre shows... I think the reason that they are so successful and not every one of his shows is a quote-unquote work of art, but all of his shows try to be, they don't always succeed, but they try to be funny. And he gets no Emmy love. I think it's a combination of the Academy thinking, oh, those shows are just old-fashioned. You know, now we want to do quirky, everything's got to be Ted Lasso. Um, And also, I I think the Academy has it out for Chuck Lorre because he's so successful doing shows that they don't feel are, quote-unquote, excellent. And just to talk about Ted Lasso for a moment... I think it's a great show, and I think it is a show that has an awful lot of heart and yet stresses comedy. Those episodes are very funny. But a lot of the so-called comedies today really aren't. And I personally love shows that try to make me laugh. And again, they don't all have to be the same format. You know, just because I like shows that are funny doesn't necessarily mean that I'm an old guy. Okay? I look at Arrested Development and how that show, which was not shot in front of an audience, that show is just jam-packed with stuff. They try to get a laugh every second. And to a certain degree, so did Veep. And if you look back at recent multi-camera shows, and I know there's a stigma attached to multi-camera shows, but I would say over the last um, 20 years, what are some of the best comedies? I think you would say Frasier, which was shot in front of a live studio audience and was kind of intellectual and highbrow, but that definitely struck a chord and there were farcical elements to it. Uh, It was, I think, a a brilliantly written sitcom. Of course, I say that I'm one of the people who wrote on it, but I do think that I'm not alone in that assessment. Uh, Then you have Seinfeld. That was shot in front of a live studio audience and that was a show where Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld only wanted to make you laugh. 
show was about nothing. There was nothing redeeming about any of the characters. Nobody learned anything. They were all adolescents, and in their own way, they were all unlikable characters. What you liked about them was they made you laugh. And finally, I would, you know, highlight Friends. Friends is a show that has caught on yet again with uh, a new generation. And people love Friends. They identify with Friends. It is as retro a sitcom as you could get in terms of multi-camera presentation. But it's funny. It is very funny, every episode. And they may deal with uh, romantic comedy with Ross and Rachel and Chandler and Monica and whatever they want to do. They can, you know, have uh, a baby with Phoebe. But all of those episodes are funny. The style of Seinfeld is very different from the style of Friends, very different from the style of Frasier, but they all make you laugh. And so that is the main point that I'm bringing out this week. And I would urge anyone developing comedies, they can be quirky, they can be like Ted Lasso, you can have your own voice. There's no reason why there can't be uh, a separate voice, uh, a new contemporary voice that comedy changes in 2023. Hopefully it can, hopefully it's you, and and I'm going to tell you a secret. It's going to go a long way to making your show successful is if you make it funny. Oh, and final, final note. When I was teaching at UCLA and I had a class of graduate students and it was a spec class where they all had to write an episode of an existing spec script. So I asked them about the shows that were on at the time. I said, how many of you like uh, girls? Like two hands went up. How many of you like Catastrophe? And three hands went up. And Silicon Valley and four hands went up. And Broad City and three other hands went up. There was really no general consensus until I said Golden Girls. Once I said Golden Girls, every hand went up. Now, Golden Girls is amazingly cast. Those four women are just brilliant. It is a master class in timing every single week. And they get into issues on that show as well, certainly. But what's the one thing that you can count on when you go to watch an episode of Golden Girls, and I suggest what is the thing that you are looking for when you turn on an episode of Golden Girls? It is that it will make you laugh. So this is really a radical plea on my part that situation comedy shows need to be funny. 
And that will do it for this edition of Hollywood and Levine. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister, Butler to Howard Hoffman, John Wolfert to Bruce and Jason Miller. If uh, you want to get in touch with me, if you have a rebuttal, whatever, uh, my email address is hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. I am also on Twitter, at Ken Levine, on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. If you haven't already, I sure would appreciate uh, a five-star review. Please subscribe to this podcast. And uh, thanks for listening to me on my soapbox. Back next week. Have a great week. Get vaccinated if you haven't already. Talk to you soon. Hollywood and Levine. 